Welcome to Grab Life Big. Grab Life Big. The exclusive podcast for healthy, wealthy, generous men who choose to lead epic life. Or as a few of us say, badass rich guys who do epic shit. And now, your host, Pat Hybin. Glad you were home. I'm always home. I'm on cool. Me too. You're doing great. The only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're on cool. Is it my advice to you? And I know you think these guys are your friends. If you want to be a true friend to them, be honest and unmerciful. Grab life big. All right, GoBros, welcome back to the GoBundance podcast, Grab Life Big. It is good to be back, and I am starting back up with a super special guest, Dr. Kelly Flanagan. And uh, listen, guys, you're going to get to meet Dr. Flanagan if you sign up for the couple's trip, June 26th through 30th in uh, Colorado and but I'm going to give you an opportunity to meet him a little bit today basically what you need to know he's an author speaker podcaster most importantly a licensed clinical shrink <laughs> and uh, co-founder of Artesian Clinical Associates in Naperville Illinois his writing has been featured in Reader's Digest he has appeared on the Today Show Huffington Post and he published a book called Lovable Embracing What is Truest About You So You Can Truly Embrace your life, and it debuted as the number one new release in interpersonal relations on Amazon. He's the host of the Lovable Podcast, and he's married to another clinical psychologist named Kelly. And of course, they have three kids, ninth, fifth, and third grade. Kelly, Dr. Kelly, Pat, Dr. <laughs> Kelly Flanagan, welcome to the show, bro. Good to, good to be here. You feel free to call me Kelly, too. <laughs> and I also have brought along Mr. Patrick Cullinane, author of A Bigger Love, soon to be released under a new title, and a relationship expert who has interviewed many of the GoBros, on, on uh, especially the ones with long relationships like myself and my wife. And he's got some super uh, deep questions for Dr. Flanagan. So uh, welcome, Patrick. Thank you, sir. All right, so let's jump right into it, buddy. So, so first of all, tell me, like, you know, why does your book and and actually why does Patrick Cullinane's book, both of them, coincidentally, start out uh, talking about uh, loving yourself is the number one thing to think about when you're wondering about your relationship, when you're dealing with your relationship. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing our, both of our books start out that way because we both learned it the hard way, <laughs> that yeah. that's how it needs to go. That's the order in which it needs to proceed. Um, I know personally I did. I learned it the hard way in my, my personal life, in my marriage, but also my clinical work. You know, I spent, spent a lot of years, uh, my, my training is in specifically in marital therapy, going back to the University of Illinois, then at Penn State for graduate school, then clinical practice. And uh, spent a lot of time trying to help couples improve their relationships. And at some point was able to sort of identify that, that my, my help was limited. What I was going to be able to do for these couples was limited because the, the, primary, the primary issue, the primary sticking point for, for uh, most marriages is that we go into the marriages 
thinking that the marriage is going to deliver to us a sense of worthiness, a sense that we're good enough, that we're lovable, that we're worthy of love and belonging. And so we're sort of seeking that from our partner. But the problem is the only place you can find worthiness is within you, right? It's not a relational journey. It's an inner journey. And so we gotta we gotta be really clear that the the foundation that marriage is built on is that sense of worthiness, is that sense that we're good enough, and only then then can our relationships begin to thrive built on that foundation. So in other words, instead of kind of trying to get worthiness from our relationships, our relationships become an expression of that sense of worthiness. And when two people can kind of begin there or find a way to get there together, really exciting things can happen. Until then. Until then, an awful lot of the relationship, and I know everybody listening to this will be able to relate to, a lot of the relationship is blaming the other person for not making you feel good enough, right? Uh, trying to sort of find a sense of worthiness either in your, your relationship with your partner or eventually you sort of give up on that and you start looking for it in other places, like trying to get a sense of worthiness from raising kids who all go to Ivy League schools or um, from getting a certain promotion at work or getting a house in a certain neighborhood. We're, we're all looking for proof that we're good enough. And, and so relationships are a big place where we dig for that. And, uh, and so we can sort of redirect couples to, to take that inner journey first and begin to get reconnected with the sense of worthiness that, that has been in them all along. Now they have a really strong foundation for building their relationship. Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, one of the things that, and like you said, I got there the hard way, but I'm still not even close to being all the way there, you know, when right. it comes to self-love because you catch yourself all the time just beating yourself up. Right. And, and then trying to get back out of that mode. And, and then, or if your spouse comes in and starts giving you crap about something you've already been beating yourself up about, then you're a little short to the defensiveness in those situations. Are there, have you picked up on like any tips or, or ways of getting yourself you know, back into that sense of self-worth quicker. Mm -hmm. I mean, are there, I mean, once you understand the concept, right? Right. <laughs> and you yes. know, this is the way I'm supposed to be thinking and then you catch yourself not doing it. Have you developed any tips or tricks along those ways of? Yeah. So I think something that you said is really important, which is it's not, you know, it's not a from point A to point B sort of journey that reconnecting with your sense of worthiness, embracing your true self, it's uh it's a cyclical journey. You'll go through seasons where you have a strong sense of self-confidence and, uh, and worthiness, and then something will trigger some of that, that old you know, self-talk, the old, what I call the voice of shame that is inside of you telling you that you're not good enough. You know? And sometimes that'll be something a spouse says, something, sometimes it'll be something you bring into the, the relationship and then become sensitive about. But it's cyclical. It's this ongoing sort of dance between trying to connect with a better voice within you and, uh, and not listen so consistently to that voice of shame. One of, the, one of the foundational ways that I look at it is that we, we come into the world with the true self, right? And this true self is good enough. It's worthy of belonging. If you've got young kids, you've seen it. You've seen a human being operating from their true self, right? They put on six different kinds of clothing. They don't care what anybody thinks of them. They are just pure expression of their truth. It never occurs to them that they're not good enough for love and belonging until they encounter words or an experience, whether it's from parents or from peers or whoever, something that communicates, yeah, you're not, you're not good enough the way you are. We don't like who you are. And that's the first time a kid experiences shame. And as soon as a kid experiences that shame, now they're in the process of building a false self. So my true self wasn't good enough. Now I have to build a false self that will protect me and go out and get the sort of love and belonging that I feel like I'm not, I'm not worthy of um, based upon who I am. And so then the rest of life sort of becomes this dance between what, where am I operating from? Am I operating from my true self where I trust that I'm worthy? 
or am I operating from my false self, which is sort of protecting me and hiding me and defending me. And so a lot of relationships is about learning to monitor that dance, right? Monitor your false self, monitor the ways you're protecting, monitor the ways that your shame is triggering the need for protection, and then beginning to kind of slowly start to reconnect with that better voice that reminds you that you're worthy. But it is a dance and it's ongoing. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You brought it, or you mentioned it, and, and um, I think I read something that hinted at it a little bit in one of your blogs. But when we talk about kids in that, I, I actually have it written down a lot, and it's a place that I try to get to in, in the being present with childlike fascination is what I call mm-hmm. it. Because Good, a, childlike, a childlike fascination is everything is new and cool and amazing, and nothing, nothing influences you. I mean, you're just mm-hmm. you're in that state. But wouldn't you say that our kids and the longer we keep going down this road of technology and social media and everything and constant advertisement and instant gratification, would you say that they've got a more uphill battle than ever to fight when it comes to that mm-hmm. sense of self-worth and happiness? And I mean, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I go back to, I think that's a really good point. I go back to that idea that, I think one of the one of the misconceptions we have as adults, because a lot of times we can't we can't even remember. We don't have a memory of a time when we were sort of living entirely purely from our true self, right? We don't have a time where we're living from that pure, as you said, childlike fascination. So we can we we forget that it's within us. We forget that we still possess that capacity within us. Um, so we think we've got to do all sorts of fancy things to build a self that is worthy. When in fact, the, the key that has been so helpful to so many of the people that I've worked with and the couples that I've worked with is that you don't have to do anything to be worthy. You already are. You have to remember that that's true and reconnect with that. And that requires sitting with oneself. That requires an inner attentiveness, right? That requires um, being quiet long enough for the voice of shame to, to die down and that other better voice within us to, to rise up. And if we are constantly, if our attention is constantly fragmented and drawn outside of us by devices and entertainment and distractions, we never have the space to get still long enough to go on that inward journey and reconnect with that part of us. And so I think it's, I think it's tough for our kids to get to know themselves because they're not just sort of alone with themselves very much anymore. Right? You, you can be completely alone in, in, in a room by yourself, but you're not really alone. You got text pinging, and you've got Roblox telling you know, telling you you got to finish this game. You, kids have a million things that prevent them from just being present to themselves. And as adults, we have a million things that prevent us from going on that inner journey back to ourselves. So it is harder than ever, and more important than ever that we sort of protect space for ourselves to have that journey. Awesome. What could uh, what kind of advice can you give specifically? for the GoBros to do or to do with their children or families to give themselves more space, mm-hmm. you know, so this doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, so the, the various things that are sort of inundating us, um, they're designed to capture more and more of our attention. So we have to be really, I think, intentional about ritualizing spaces that are protected from all of those distractions. So I'll give you an example. Last, sometime last summer, probably mid-summer, July or something, I think, you know, I, I work from home three days a week, and so the kids are home with me. And I think I was just so sort of fed up by 
all of the constant um, fighting and distractions and, um, and franticness of, of kids' lives these days that I said, okay, Friday afternoons, we're going out. We have this river that runs through our town. We're going out to our river. And we're going to meditate for 15 minutes, mindful breathing, and then we're going to write poetry for another 15 minutes. And if you can do that, we'll go get some ice cream, <laughs> right? And my, my middle guy, true to form, totally rebelled. He didn't get ice cream the first week. But sure enough, after watching your older brother and younger sister eat some ice cream, you make some space to breathe the following week, right? And by the, by the fourth or fifth week that we did it, there was no resistance anymore. In fact, what they had started to get was a taste of how good it can feel, right? They, we, we sort of know. We, we grew up in a time where distractions, we had some spaces of quiet, and we knew that it could, it could feel pretty good to not be drawn in a million different directions. They don't know. They've never had that. So to give them a taste of that, they actually start to enjoy it. So if you can start to schedule that into your family routine, maybe even just once a week, you begin to give kids a taste of what it can be like to actually be centered in themselves. They really enjoy it. That's great. That's good stuff. What, so I've got a question more geared towards relationships. One of the things that I, I run into a lot, and, and it's not anybody's fault because we've been we've been taught by Disney and television and everything else out there that, you know, love is supposed to be all butterflies and, and mm-hmm. mad love and that kind of thing. And, um, we, we kind of talk about, it and we've learned that, you know, there's multiple different kinds of love in the U S we use one, but mm-hmm. Greeks have multiple different words for it. And there's there, the stages after that kind of eros, that beginning that, you know, where all the butterflies and everything's good and you'll do anything for her and she'll do anything for you. And you're having, sex like rabbits and uh, then you have kids, you know, and, and things start to evolve. And that's, mm-hmm. that's where the problem started for us. And I, I yeah. think, you know, there's a lot of go abundance guys that sometimes struggle with, you know, not being on the same page with their wife and things not being the same as it was. Do, what kind of tips do you have towards that? I mean, mm-hmm. as far as, I mean, all I can do is tell them, like, if you focus and work on your relationship, the, the stages of love after Eros are so much better. But right. Yes. What do you have? <laughs> yeah, it's good. Yeah. So the, um, you know, the, the, I think the two, like the two words for love that come after that in the Greek language, one is phileo, which means essentially yeah. compa- companionship. And the other one is agape, which uh, means essentially unconditional love. Right. Yeah. Now the Greeks, what, what I think is interesting is that in our current culture, we've taken that idea of agape and we've said, that's what, that's what marriage should be right? Is this unconditional love. Right. The Greeks never used that word um, in reference to human beings. I equate it to total enlightenment. It's just something that, you know, you don't get to. <laughs> right. Well, and, and I think too that, you know, like, like you I used a good word there. It's for deities. And the interesting thing about a deity is a deity can love you from a distance, pretty, un, you know, unconditionally. One of, you know, Oh, you don't agree with me? Well, I love you unconditionally anyway. It's just, I, I don't want to spend too much time in relationship with you. In a way, unconditional love can be used as sort of a cop-out so that you don't get into the nitty-gritty work of real companionship, of being mm-hmm. like, I have things that you'll never understand about me. You have things that I'll never understand about you. There are ways that I'm always going to feel lonely in this relationship. You're always going to feel lonely. We have to figure out ways to connect and share that loneliness together. I mean, it, it's, it's work, right? Um, yeah. so I, I really appreciate what you're saying. I think that the aspiration of marriage that is, that is healthiest for us human beings is that aspiration of companionship rather than unconditional love. 
learning the day in, day out of, of, of essentially walking alongside each other through the rest of, of this life. I remember I was taking my daughter to, um, to school probably last spring, I guess. And anyways, we have a few friends we pick up in the carpool. And usually we go one way around the neighborhood to pick up the friends and we're pulling out of the driveway. And she says, Dad, I think you should go to the right today. I think that's faster. And I said, well, you know, okay, sweet. I think I go the other way because it's faster, but we can <laughs> sort of experiment with it, right? So I go to the right and we pick up the friends and we're going to get the last friend, the one that we'd normally get first. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, this is way slower, right? And my daughter says, oh, dad, this was definitely faster today. I'm like, okay, don't let her get away with this, you know, like you don't have to. I'm like, no, no I'm, good, I'm good. I said, sweetie, I think actually this was slower. And she gives it, I hear this big sigh from the backseat, like, Oh, you know, <laughs> and I go, well, Caitlin, what, what, what is it? And she goes, we have different tastes today. <laughs> you know, and I think that that's the reality of marriage and companionship is you have different tastes every day. This right. idea that you're going to be wanting the same things all the time, I think is just this unrealistic expectation. So to, to me, most of relationship is about saying, when you live from your true self and I live from my true self, we're going to end up being pretty different people. But we rejoice in the fact that you're getting to live from your true self and that I get to. And we figure out how to make those two selves work together. Uh, compatibility is not necessarily like a, a prerequisite for marriage. It's the, it's the outcome of a good marriage, right? That we've learned how to be two very different people who are, are living life together. So that's what I, you can see. I get excited about that, that idea. Did you tell that analogy because our wives are always trying to tell us how to drive? <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I said, Caitlin, just don't tell your husband that someday. Yeah. <laughs> I, did not, I did not say that. <laughs> if my wife found out I said that to my daughter, I'd really be busted. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you uh, if your wife had said the same thing to you, I think you should go right. I think it's faster. And then told you it was faster. Oh, and you reacted the same. So, <laughs> such a great question. It's such a great question. So, of course not. I'd have been like, no, it's, no, no left is fast. Oh, no, I had timed it. Right? I timed, timed it before. And no, we're not yeah. doing this. I would have um, driven around the block with a stopwatch twice. Like, see? Right, exactly. Like, <laughs> get the data and prove your point. Of course, yeah. yeah. So, so, so talk to me about this, Kelly. Like, GoBundance is men, 180 men who basically are entrepreneurs, you know, driven focused, probably ADD very much in their minds a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what advice would you have for the ones that are just starting to get stronger and stronger and stronger as regards to more opportunities, more ways to make money, more ways to grow their businesses? What, what do we need to look out for if you're in that position uh, mm -hmm. from a marriage standpoint? And yeah. how, can we, how can we recognize some, some problems that could occur? It's a great question. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm probably here on your podcast today and, and coming out to Colorado um, in large part because of a, sort of a metaphor that I've shared with some of your guys um, along the way in various, in various formats. And it's this idea that um, going way back to childhood when you – when you start to, to doubt your true self, start to believe it might not be good enough, and you start to build that false self, I think it's really important to get clear about what that false self is. And there's a metaphor that has been really helpful for me personally and helpful for my clients over the years. I've tried a bunch of different metaphors. This is the one that's most helpful. It's the, the idea that this false self is like a castle that is protecting your true self, uh, and that it's got three components to it. 
the first component of your false self. Um, almost every kid starts to build sometime in like late elementary school. Um, and that's the castle walls, the part of your false self that's in charge of hiding your true self from the world. So this starts to happen usually around fourth or fifth grade. And if you've got a fourth or fifth grader, or you remember what it was like, that's the point where like all of a sudden kids are wanting to wear name brand shoes and sitting at the jocks table matters. And, um, oh, yeah, I used to like this music, but now I like this one because all the cool kids are listening to it. And, and what you're seeing there is the false, the false self, the ego walls that are starting to be built up to hide who I really am and sort of camouflage myself and blend into the world. And then at some point, usually around middle school, high school age, kids begin to build ego cannons to go on those, those ego walls, more aggressive and defensive ways to stay safe from, from further shame and from further criticism, you know, uh, gossip, criticism, it, kind of physical aggression sometimes. My wife says that cannons is a, a way too masculine of a metaphor that women put archers on their castle walls, um, like precision strikes that cut close to the bone, you know? And the mean girls who can eviscerate you on Facebook with a single comment. Not Facebook anymore, Instagram. Anyways, the point being, um, so you've got this these ego walls that you build, then you add cannons to kind of best defense is a, a good offense and to keep people more at a distance so they can't hurt me. And then at some point in life, and this is probably what most of your guys are, are wrestling with at some level, we hopefully, this is again, this is how it's supposed to go, hopefully we, we develop an ego throne. And this is sort of the place in the world where we've arrived, we've had some success, we have some sort of control or respect in an area of our lives. And, uh, and so the feeling that goes along with that ego throne is, I must be good enough because look what I've accomplished. Right? I must be good enough because I've proven it now through the things that I do. And so what many husbands are wrestling with is that that can be a very intoxicating sort of place to stay. But relationships don't work <laughs> from sitting up on an ego throne. Right? What works at work, what works out in your career to be successful, won't work when you get at home. You can't connect from up on an ego throne. You've got to step down. Uh, you can't be firing your cannons. You can't be hiding behind walls. You have to drop the drawbridge of your ego castle. You have to walk out your true self, be vulnerable, be authentic, be truly connected. So I would say most husbands are, are wrestling with the temptation to continue to function at home from the very thing that makes them most successful out in the world. And they've got this very unique challenge of having to come home and all the stuff that works out there. They have to sort of set that aside in a different place within them when they get home. So in Colorado, we're going to be talking a lot about that, that ego, right? That, that originally was designed to protect us, served us well for a really long time, but now is getting in the way of true connection in our relationship. So can you give us like some, a couple of step-by-step, -step, maybe a preview of Colorado? Like, can you give us some exact things that we should be doing or that we should do? So I think one of the things that is going to be really fun about Colorado is that the, the temptation is to, the, the temptation all along has been to start to associate my sense of worth with what I do, right? What I do, what I accomplish. And what I hope to do in Colorado is really create a space that's going to feel pretty relieving, a sense of, oh, I don't have to do anything great to be worthy. I get to, I get to cultivate space to settle into that. And so a lot of what we're going to be doing is engaging in experiential exercises that help us begin to disrupt that compulsive doing that says, if I just do one more thing, then I'll be worthy. 
Or if I just do one more thing, I'll fix my relationship. And instead, what if we figured out a way to pause all that doing, learn how to just be connected to yourself and just be connected to your partner? What would that look like? And we're going to start to create spaces to do that. That, you know, I, I, I did marriage retreats for years where I, I, gave, I had lots of sort of ambitious doing oriented activities. And I think people thought it was cool for, for the weekend. And I didn't see a lot of transformation coming out of it going down the road. But if we can, can improve our capacity to, to be together authentically rather than to do something new, that changes us going forward. And so that's what we're going to focus on in Colorado. So w- w- what, about, what about now? Like what are some things we can mm-hmm. take away from this podcast? That mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think a lot of your guys are familiar with uh, Hal, El- Hal Elrod's uh, Miracle Morning, right? I think one of the incredible values of that paradigm and of that practice is the intentional creation of space, um, the intentional creation of space to to be uh, to envision what you want for yourself, for your relationships, for your career, and so on. I would I would take that same principle, and I would say what you can begin doing to prepare for Colorado is set aside ten minutes every morning in which you focus on your breath before you do anything else. Um, 10 minutes of mindful breathing every morning in which you, in which you begin to reconnect and, and cultivate a sense of space around yourself that is not constantly inundated by, by all these temptations to believe that you are what you do. Because that, that capacity to be still with oneself is what's going to allow you to observe that ego castle functioning in your relationship. And the ability to observe that ego castle functioning in your relationship is what's going to change it. So I'll give you an example of this, and I'll throw my wife under the bus on this one. She comes home. It was last Thursday night. We had one kid who was lifeguarding at the Y, and the other two were at swim lessons at the Y. So we actually had like 45 minutes of like alone time on a weeknight. It was unprecedented for us. And she walks in the door, and I can like feel. I can feel the, you know, the, she's, she's a clinical psychologist clinical psychologist just had a long day. I can sort of feel the waves emanating off of her. I'm like, okay, I'm on thin ice. I don't really know why. I'm sort of trying to connect and I can't say anything right, you know? And God bless this woman. About maybe 15 minutes into it, she goes, I want you to know something. I just realized I had such a hard day and I was so frustrated on the way home that I started to sort of generate all these sort of resentments towards you about the fact that you'd been at home in a quiet house all day there was nothing you could have said when I walked in the door that I would have been happy with and so to me that's my that's my wife observing those ego cannons right she's going I've had a bad day it was rough I feel vulnerable and I'm going to take it out on him I'm, I'm going to blame him I'm going to I get to go home and, and take it out on him and she was able to kind of create the space in our interaction to observe those ego cannons at work and instead of continuing to fire them from a place of authenticity, lower the drawbridge and say, I'm firing my cannons at you. And, uh, and I'm sorry, there's nothing you could have done to, tonight to make me happy. Changed the entire dynamic of the evening. We had a, a lovely next half hour until the kids got home and started picking on each other and ruined our night. You know? so, so that's what we want to do. We want to cultivate the ability, the space within ourselves to be able to observe that ego at work. Because as soon as we can do that, and we can begin to name it and express it to our partner, it's just a total game changer. I've got, I've got three things that, based on a lot of what you just said that I sure. wanted to mention. The first one is uh, uh, Kelly was, they were arrows, not cannons. You right. Said that they were yes, cannons. yes um, true. 
Yes. And then you, you, mentioned, yes. <laughs> you mentioned uh, Miracle Morning, and they actually just released, I believe it was yesterday or the day before, maybe it was Valentine's Day, the Miracle Morning for Couples. Perfect. Yes. So there's one of those out there. I'm going to give them a shameless plug. That's Brandy, mm -hmm. Lance Salazar, and Helen Honoré. And then yeah. I would also like to get my own opinion on what the Go Abundance guys that are thinking about going on this trip should do. And that is that anybody who doesn't download the Kindle or buy your book and read it before they go on a trip is a fucking idiot. So <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you pay the money to go on the trip, do the background and it's good. I, I started reading it and ended up just buying it. I mean, I was reading the free part and I'm like, oh, I just want the book, but I, I really enjoy you. You're a really good writer. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I do think, I do think that reading the book is a great way, a great primer for the, the retreat. Uh, gives you a nice foundation. The, the stuff that I'll be talking about sort of maps on to, to what we what I write about in the book, but um, expands upon it and it isn't redundant anyway. So I think, I think having that foundation would be great. Thanks for the recommendation. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the book. What's the premise of the book and, and mm -hmm. um, what do you use it for, that sort of thing? Yeah. It's all in the title. <laughs> I'm glad to, <laughs> titles matter, right? I'm glad, <laughs> glad to hear that you feel like the title captures it. You know, so I guess it was 2014, my daughter and I, we wound up on the Today Show after I wrote her um, a, a letter and put it on my blog that went viral. And um, and after the Today Show, I got connected with a great agent who was like, you know, what, what are you going to write a book about? Um, and I was like, oh, well, I don't know. And, and she said, uh, she goes, well, people are really responding to these letters you write to your kids. Maybe that's what you should write a book about. And I came home and told my wife that, and she's the child clinical psychologist. And she sort of laughed at me. It's like, you have no business writing a parenting book. Like that. And she's right. Like everything I've learned about parenting, I've learned from her. But, um, but I, I got to thinking about it. And so I started sending my, my agent um, ideas. And one day she called me and she goes, you keep sending me these three ideas, worthiness, purpose, and belonging. And, and why do you keep sending me those three ideas? And I said to her, no, it's not worthiness, purpose, and belonging. It's worthiness and then belonging and then purpose. Those are the three things we're all longing for in life. And those are the only order in which we can actually get them. And she said, oh, well, that's what you got to write your book about. That's, that's, that's exactly, that's right on. So that's what Lovable became about. It became about this idea that most of the time as a, as a clinical psychologist, clinical shrink who's trained in marital therapy, I have couples come to me. And they're saying, basically, our relationship is broken. How do we fix it? And more often than not, these days, what I understand we need to do is we need to not fo focus on the relationship first. We need to focus on building that foundation of worthiness because they're trying to get something from their relationships that they're never going to get, which is a sense of worthiness. And then once you've built that authentic connection based upon a mutual sense of worthiness, and once you um, have that you've cultivated that sense of belonging with each other, now you've got someone in your life who can support you as you pursue the things that you're most passionate about doing in the world, the things you feel called to do. Um, you have somebody that you could be able to go home and lick your wounds with, someone who will support you. My wife, my goodness, writing books is not easy. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a way to make a quick buck. <laughs> Patrick, I think you could attest to that with me. But she's very like, funny. <laughs> now, eventually they say... But, you know, like, she's been so supportive of that because she knows that's my passion. So that's what I, I would um, kind of want to communicate to couples is that when they're coming to this retreat, they're coming to, to cue in to the importance of that foundation of the sense of worthiness. But the payoff is not going to be just for their relationship. Their purpose is not, their purpose in life, no one's purpose in life 
is to have a good marriage. A good marriage is the thing that supports you as you pursue your purpose in life. And so I think they're going to get way more out of this than, than they bargained for. Good, good marriage is something that, uh, that is at the end of the, something you get by working on it. It's right. That's something, it's something that you get by working on it. And, and I think, you know, we need, we need a fan, right? Um, we need somebody who believes in what we believe in enough to support us as we go out into the world and do things that are hard. And yeah. I think once you've cultivated that sense of companionship and belonging, that's what, you, that's what you get in marriage. So we'll be talking about that too. We'll be talking about what it means to have a passion and pursue a purpose and be supported uh, by your, your spouse in that as well. Awesome. That's awesome. And, and retreats like you've done, have you done retreats like this in the past before with mm-hmm. multiple couples there? And, and how, how do you normally set it up? Is it like an all day thing and then they hang out at night or do you take breaks in the day? And uh, you know, yep. what, is any part of it, is any part of it clothing optional? <laughs> uh, not, for, not for me. I'll make my <laughs> I'll let everybody else decide what they want to do, but no one wants to see me up front without clothes on. So typically, yeah, I've done a bunch of these, and I, in fact, I'm hosting my own uh, retreat in, in Utah in October. But typically, what I love about this retreat, the way it's different, is typically, you know, you can convince couples to get away and work on their relationship for 24, 36 hours at the most, right? Um, so typically... We'll do three sessions, one session focused on that foundation of worthiness, the second session focused on authenticity and belonging, and the third session focused on supporting each other in our pursuit of a purpose. We have to sort of scrunch them all together. There's never enough time. Really unpack and, and, uh, and digest those ideas. So what I love about this is that uh, I, I believe the plan is that we will have a session each morning of three days. And then we will have afternoons and evenings to begin to let those ideas sort of settle in as we do other fun things during those times as well. So I feel like we're really going to be able to give it the space that it needs to really get traction with it and, and, uh, and sink in. So I'm super excited. Nice. Where are you going in Utah? Uh, so it's outside of Park City, Utah, Pioa, Utah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, I have these, uh, this couple who um, just they become good friends through a relationship I developed through my, my blogging and writing, but they, um, they own 75 acres in Peoria, Utah. Called, yeah. and they call it the 4U Ranch, and so we're, we're totally just retreating, sort of getting out of, out of the way of everything, and, um, and we're going to do that in October, so it's going to be awesome. Is that, is that open to other people to plug into? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, if people are interested in connecting with that, probably, I think, I don't have the URL right off the top of my head, I think it's simpletix.com backslash 2019 lovable retreat, so, um, or lovable weekend, but, um, but certainly, yeah, people can, can connect with me about that. Tell okay. me about the, tell me about the, the, the Today Show, the thing <laughs> with that, so you, yeah, tell me the story with that. Well, okay, so let's see. I start blogging. I'm, I'll, I'll do this quick. I started blogging in 2012. Um, I had my, my first viral blog post was early in 2012, uh, a blog post called Marriages for Losers. And uh, I think the title helped that, that blog post. The idea was that, you know, basically your ego is designed to win. Your ego is designed to, to be right, right to drive around the block a few times and record the data and prove that you're right. And so to really, uh, to really be successful in marriage, that ego has to feel like it's losing, it has to feel like uh, it's uh, forgiving and compromising and um, not always right, because it isn't, it isn't always right. Um, so anyways, had that blog post go viral, 
about a year later, I had another blog post go viral. It was a, a letter that I wrote to my daughter, actually, about how she's inherently worthy of interest and that the, um, that the important thing in a relationship is, is to, to not be looking for someone that you need to prove that you're interesting to all the time, but someone who knows you're worthy of interest and that you know they're interesting as well. And that went really viral. About a year later, at the beginning of 2014, I published a, a second letter to her. I wrote it from the, the makeup aisle of a Target store. It was to her about how her, she is beautiful on the outside, but her, like, her really true beauty is on the inside. And that blog post went really viral right around the time that the Today Show was looking for, I think, probably for a dad to come in and talk about daughters and self-image and that kind of thing. I think the timing was good. And uh, yeah, so I was, in my, I was in my shrink office one day and I got a phone call from NBC saying, hey, you want to come out and, uh, with your daughter and sit on the orange couch? And, uh, and so in February of 2014, she and I did that. It was a total blast. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. And it's awesome that she took to it. You think, I mean, like, cause you know, I've done things for my kids and sometimes I feel like when you put out like that, you re- really wonder if it sinks in or if they remember it. And I think that they do, you know what I mean? But they don't react so, to it other than initially, you know, you know, she was, so she was only three at the time. Um, so I wrote her a letter that I knew she wasn't even really going to comprehend for a while. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's a, the video is adorable. Like she's sitting there on the couch. I was so proud of her. Like she totally, I mean, totally kept it all together. I think at one point she like, you know, lifts up her skirt or something and shows everybody up her dresser. But, um, but for years she had no interest in it at all. Like, you know, and then, you know, I think at some point somebody said, Hey, you know, you're famous. You're on the today show. And she's like, huh? <laughs> what? And I'm like, yeah, remember sweetie, that video? Do you want to watch it? She still has not watched it. She has not oh. wanted to watch the video. So someday she will. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. How old is she now? Uh, she's nine. She'll be ten this uh, this October. Oh wow! Yeah. How much? How much of an uphill battle? And I'm, how much of an uphill battle do you? I mean, knowing what you know about and what you've written a book about, you probably still see it. Your kids battling with it. In fact, there's a quote you got to tell us about that your uh, your mm-hmm. son told you once. But how much of that do you still struggle with with your own kids? You know, mm-hmm. with the gossip and the. Yeah, just all the challenges that they have, the the constant barrage from the media that they're not good enough or they're not happy unless they have, and you know. Well, I mean, I think it's important. I appreciate that question because I start talking about themes like shame, and it it always freaks parents out. Like, oh my gosh, am I shaming my kid? I'm sure I've sent them the message they're not good enough, and I always like to reassure parents: absolutely, you've definitely shamed your kid. <laughs> like, there's no chance you haven't. They're they're going to pick it up somewhere. Some of it's you know, some of it's going to be from you, but um. No, I, I think Aiden, for example, you know, in sixth grade, we moved, we moved into a new town at the beginning of his sixth grade year, essentially to a new culture, started middle school with almost no, no friends, no social network. And over the course of sixth grade, what we saw was that Aiden, he's got this great wit, this great sense of humor. He's, he's got a quick tongue. And um, that he started to sort of use those really good parts about his true self and started to build a false self out of those true parts, you know, like kind of knocking other kids down, being the class clown to get attention, really started to dig himself a hole, both socially and with his teachers. And so we actually, I mean, he's read lovable. He was, I think, probably 13 when he read it the first time, you know, it's, it's middle school friendly. And, um, and, and so I, we actually had that language to talk, you know, Hey dude, these are your ego cannons and I get that you need them right now. It's scary to be in a new school. It's scary, you know, to, to be uh, in a new social situation, but the way you're using these cannons, like it's, you're digging a, a hole for yourself. And uh, so gradually over the course of sixth and seventh grade, we saw him, I think, start to get past that a little bit, start to 
to be more comfortable sort of um, engaging the world more from his true self rather than that protective self. And um, we, was, I think it was like the first week, or the week before eighth grade, we were out on a boat with a friend and my friend said to Aiden, uh, hey, Aiden, you know, eighth grade, most popular kids in the school, man, that's going to be awesome. And I remember Aiden said to him like, oh, no, I'll never be the most popular kid in the school. And uh, my buddy goes, oh, you know, I'm sure that's not true. And Aiden goes, no, it's true. And that's, that's okay. Po- being popular wouldn't make me happy anyways. And I'm like, okay, he's getting it right. Like he doesn't need to be up on that ego throne to feel good about himself. Right. right. And then, and then what, nine months later, we're at his high school orientation mm-hmm. and I'm watching all these friends of his sort of, you know, really surround him. He's being really authentic. He doesn't have any of that, you know, macho facade on. And uh, we're walking out of the orientation. And I said to him, I go, Aiden, you're, uh, you're really well loved. And he goes, he goes, yeah, it helps that I'm not an asshole anymore, <laughs> which I thought was brilliant. Like he, he was getting it, you know, and just a couple of times this weekend, now we're what, we're halfway through ninth grade. He was starting to do that thing in both times. He was, he was observing it happening, right? You know what he said? He was making fun of the fact that we were all going to Lego movie too, right? As if he's this, you know, mature ninth grader, he stops himself and he goes, you know what? I think I'm just making fun of it because I think it's sort of pathetic that I'm so lonely. I'm going to Lego movie two on a Saturday with my family. And I thought, oh, he's observing it. He's getting it. And then as soon as he named it, he could let it go. He didn't need to, to, need to do that thing anymore. So it's just constant. He, and he's not going to get over it. Like it's a constant yeah. lifelong observation of that protective self that we have to engage in. I, I know that uh, you did some, we already talked about it, you did some, something, or you started something with Fan Abundance, but I can see you being a big help in that group also, just kind of helping us with kids. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I, I don't pretend to have all the answers, but I think the extent to which we can, you know, we were the ones who observed, we're the, we're the memory holders of our kids' true selves, right? They probably won't remember it at some point, what it was like to, to live completely unfettered by a false self that they, they feel like they need protection by. So we're the memory holders of their false selves. So whatever we can do to remind them of who they are, keep them connected with that true self while having some boundaries, but grace for the ways that they're experimenting with their false self, right? I feel like that's sort of that, that fine line we're trying to walk as parents. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy to help help anybody who wants to talk about that. Nice. Yeah, I love the concept of naming it, you know, of just of thinking it through and say the reason that I'm doing it, like your wife did, mm-hmm. like your son did. I mean, just brilliant. I mean, was, you know, sometimes it takes, you know, I find like I can name stuff like that, but it usually takes three or four days after like yes. a spirited debate that I probably lost. And then, you know, <laughs> now, now I can name it. Just to name it that fast, I think. is a Well, blessing. And that just, that just comes with practice, honestly, you know, you, uh, I don't think that, again, you talk about Aiden now for three years trying to learn how to do that. It, it gets easier to do it in the moment. And when, when, you, when you start to have that experience of how good it feels to name it, to not have to hide behind that false self, you want to do it more and more. You realize that as soon as you can name it and identify it with people who are safe, it's going to feel really good and you're going to feel connected to them in a way that you haven't yeah. been before. Even, uh, even, even naming it, well, I mean, naming it is kind of an easy term for it, but it's, I'm 52 and I'm just learning some of this stuff myself, but mm-hmm. it's not, it, naming it for yourself is the first step, you know, get it out and, and, and embrace it and own it for a few minutes. You know, you don't have to like immediately say, oh God, that's gross and throw it away. Take a look at it, get it on the table, turn it over. Yes. And then, uh, 
Well, and I love that. I love that reflection because if we, if our reaction to our own false self is one of revulsion or dislike, the irony there is that we're shaming ourselves now and we have a false self because of the shame that we feel. And so if we shame ourselves for having a false self, we've just given ourselves more of a reason to have a false self. Now, I know that's a bit of a mind bender, but I believe it's absolutely true. So the extent to which we can observe our false self with a sense of compassion, right? And be like, oh, I needed this. Life was dangerous when I was five. Life, life was dangerous when I was in high school. And those, I needed a false self. Thank, thank you, false self, for protecting me um, all those years. But you're sort of messing things up for me right now. So you can stand down. I've got it. And so to the extent to which we can forgive ourselves for having it, have compassion for our false self, now we're undoing completely the whole cycle that promotes the false self. And, uh, and that gets really exciting. Yeah. It's, it's not really that much of a mind bender for anybody that went to Breckenridge because mm. uh, J.P. Sears told us a 10-minute dick joke that was the exact same as what you just said. <laughs> we all have our own way of saying I was reminded, yeah, I was reminded of that. I was like, so well, <laughs> it sounds like something J.P. Sears would say. That's a... This is fascinating. Well, listen, Kelly, this has been fun, buddy. I look forward to uh, meeting you in uh, Colorado uh, on June 26th through 30th. Guys, put that in your calendars. You know, the link to sign up is in the GoBundance Facebook page, the GoBundance Elite Facebook page, or you can, of course, just reach out direct to Melanie at Melanie at GoBundance.com to get signed up for that. And, and got a limited amount of couples that can attend, so let's let's get signed up. It's going to be a really good bonding experience as it always is for on the couple's trip and uh we're going to dig deep into our relationships and i promise you you'll come out uh so much so much uh, better in so many ways but especially with your marriage or relationship kelly hey, money back what's that <laughs> i said are your money back are right? your money back that's right that's right, that's right. That's right. That's right. So, Kelly, thanks again. Patrick, thanks again for uh, coming on and contributing. And I, I appreciate you guys. And uh, grab life big. Yeah, thanks, Pat. I look forward to meeting you in Colorado. Thanks, Pat. Thanks, Patrick. I'll see you tomorrow. See you later. Bye-bye. Grab life big.